Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, Episode 61. Last week, I covered the people and places found in Genesis chapters 33 through 35. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm doing the same, picking up in the middle of Genesis chapter 35 and continuing to work my way through that chapter. So let's get started. Like I mentioned, Last week I left off essentially midway through Genesis 35. As a refresher, in this chapter, God sends Jacob to Bethel, where he builds an altar. After he's done, God appears to him and reaffirms the promise that Jacob will be a great nation, and that his name will be Israel. Jacob, well Israel, sets up a pillar and pours a drink offering. Then, Rachel gives birth to Benjamin but she dies in the process. She is buried near Bethlehem. At the end of the chapter, Isaac dies and is buried by both Jacob and Esau. In this chapter, the first place mentioned is Bethel. The word Bethel is of Ugaritic origin and literally translates to the house of El, or house of God. Which makes sense, since the Northwest Semitic word El meant God, or deity. In fact, even the Hebrew language used a form of the word as a generic word for a god that could be used for any god including Hadad, Moloch, or even Yahweh. Think of it as God with a lowercase g. The word with an uppercase g was reserved for the one and only. I've mentioned Ugarit a few times, and we'll touch on it more in a few weeks. But back to Bethel. Bethel was a border city described in the Old Testament, believed to have been located between Benjamin and Ephraim. The town is first mentioned in Genesis chapters 12 and 13, as a location close to where Abram encamped and built an altar while traveling to Egypt. He also stopped in the area upon his return. In Joshua chapters 7 and 8, it is said to be close to Ai, specifically being located to the west of that city. But, I'm covering it now because the mention of it was more prominent in both Genesis chapters 28 and 35. In chapter 28, it was the location of Jacob's dream, where he was addressed at length by God. Then in chapter 35, God commanded him to return and settle in Bethel. Also in 35, God repeats his promise of fruitfulness to Jacob. Also mentioned last week, it was in Genesis that it was revealed that the original name of this location was Luz, apparently a Canaanite name. But in Joshua chapter 16, Bethel was said to be near Luz. Specifically, the allotment of the Josephites went from the Jordan by Jericho, east of the waters of Jericho, into the wilderness, going up from Jericho into the hill country to Bethel, then going from Bethel to Luz. It passes along to Adaroth, the territory of the Archites." In Judges chapter 20, the Israelites went to Bethel and asked God, Which of us shall go up first to battle against the Benjamites? And he answered, Judah shall go up first. It has been proposed that this location of God's address to the Israelites was very vital since Bethel does mean the house of God. A few verses later, in the same chapter, 
the Israelites revisit Bethel after suffering massive casualties in the battle against the Benjaminites. In this section, the text indicates that the Ark of the Covenant was kept at Bethel. Now, the Ark is not mentioned again in the text until 1 Samuel chapter 4, when its location is given as Shiloh. The hows and the whys of its move to Shiloh is not addressed, and this makes me at least wonder how it had lost such prominence. In the next chapter of Judges, 21, the geographic location of Bethel is somewhat indicated, as it's said to be south of Shiloh. And there was also a road from Bethel to Sheshem. Next, in 1 Samuel chapter 7, we learn that the prophet Samuel, despite making his home in Ramah, would make an annual trip to Bethel, Gilgah, and Mizpah to serve as a judge. I know I've mentioned several different judges, and rest assured that when I get to that specific book, I will cover the different judges and what their roles were in ancient Israel. A few chapters later, in 1 Samuel chapter 10, Samuel tells Saul to go to Bethel. Samuel prophesizes that Saul will meet a group of men who will provide him with goats, bread, and wine. It actually says that he will be provided with kids, apparently for consumption. But I don't advise that you read that part aloud to your children. They might get a little worried. Following the death of King Solomon, as I've covered before, the kingdom of Israel was split into two separate kingdoms. It was shortly after this that Jeroboam became the first king of the northern kingdom, and that was the kingdom of Israel. Jeroboam then made two golden calf idols and placed one in Bethel and the other in Dan. His goal was to eliminate the need for his subjects to travel to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. As a note, the temple was found in the other kingdom, that of Judah, and the Judeans did not like the competing sites of worship. Simply from an economic sense, they were losing out on all the tourist and pilgrims' income. Next, in 1 Kings chapter 13, an unnamed man visited the altar at Bethel and prophesied that it would someday be destroyed by Josiah. In 2 Kings, both the prophets Elijah and Elisha are said to have visited Bethel on a journey from Gilgah to Jericho. This was not long before Elijah ascended to heaven. After that, when Elijah returned to Bethel, it was a location where something very curious happened. According to the New Revised Standard Version, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go away, bald head! Go away, bald head! A quick sidebar. Some translations substitute the word baldy for bald head. Anyway, I'll restart. Some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go away, baldy! Go away, bald head! When he turned around and saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. Then, two she-bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. From there, he went on to Mount Carmel, and then returned to Samaria. And let that be a lesson to those of you who are tempted to mock bald prophets. Bethel is next mentioned, along with the tenth king of Israel, Jehu, who is thought to have ruled between 842 and 815 BC. Jehu is said to have massacred the prophets of Baal, and oversaw the destruction of their temple, but he allowed the two golden calves to remain in Bethel and Dan. All of this is found in 2 Kings chapter 10. 
Later, through deduction, we can see that the shrine of the city dodged the destruction wrought by the invading Assyrians. But true to the prior prophecy, it was ultimately destroyed by the King Josiah of Judah, who ruled between about 640 and 609 BC, and as seen in 2 Kings chapter 23. Finally, Bethel is mentioned in Ezra chapter 2 and Nehemiah chapter 7 as being resettled at the time of the return of the exiles from Babylon. The town was also mentioned in the Old Testament book of Amos in both chapters 5 and 7. In the New Revised Standard Version, chapter 5 reads, For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. But do not seek Bethel, and do not enter into Gilgah or cross over into Beersheba. For Gilgah shall surely come into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Foreshadowing. Chapter 7 reads, Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to King Jeroboam of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the very center of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there, and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel. For it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. Not long thereafter, in the book that bears his name, Specifically in chapter 10, the prophet Hosea declares the wickedness of Bethel. He was not alone in this thought, as Jeremiah in chapter 48 of his book describes, albeit briefly, the disgrace brought onto Israel by Bethel. Outside of the Old Testament, but in manuscripts and other records from later in history, we are told of how Bethel was inhabited and fortified by the 2nd century Greek general Bakshidas. This was in the era when the Greeks were fighting the Maccabees. Then Josephus, a couple of hundred years later, writes of how Bethel was captured in the first century AD by Roman Emperor Vespasian. And in the timeline between the two, Bakshidas and Vespasian was Christ. So the city was on the map when he walked in the area. Bethel was again mentioned by the 4th century AD Greek historian Eusebius and the 5th century Roman historian Jerome. They both describe Bethel as a small village about 11 miles or 18 kilometers north of Jerusalem to the east of the road leading to Nepolis, which seems fairly specific. But these were the last two known references to the city as it effectively disappeared from the record. 19th century American historian Edward Robinson thought that the village known as Beaton on the west bank of the Jordan may have been the location of the biblical Bethel. He based his assessment on its fitting the location described in earlier text, namely that of Eusebius and Jerome. Also, he relied on the similarities between the names of the two places. He did remark that the uncovered ruins at Betian are larger than a village and therefore may either not be from the village of Bethel or the historic record did not accurately capture its size. There were also ruins of an apparently medieval church uncovered in the village, so it couldn't have completely disappeared by that era. And 
Working under the assumption that this identification is correct, I'll cover the known history of that village, that is, Betian. The first human settlement in the city appears to have occurred in the Copper Age. Archaeological digs have revealed flint tools, pottery, and animal bones from that time. After the Copper Age, of course, was the Early Bronze Age, which in this region is generally considered to have occurred sometime around 3200 BC. It appears that the area was inhabited by nomadic herders in this era. Beginning around the Middle Bronze Age, which was around 1750 BC, Canaanite temples and tombs, mud brick houses, and even olive presses were uncovered in the general area of the village. It was in this time that it is believed the location evolved from an agricultural village to a garrisoned Canaanite town, and that it was probably named Luz. In fact, two city gates from the period have been found, which of course indicates that there was also a wall around the city. The excavations seem to indicate that the second temple was built in Luz during this period, but it is thought to have been destroyed by an earthquake. Overall, pottery fragments have been found that range from the Early Bronze Age all the way to the Roman era and seem to indicate that the city was constantly and consistently occupied. Other than that, not much is known from the extra-biblical historic record concerning the history of this city during the time of the Old Testament. So, I'll choose to let the history found in those books stand on their own. And, I'll skip ahead a few hundred years to the Byzantian era. In this time period, the town seems to have been occupied primarily by Eastern Orthodox Christians. But there were also monks, specifically one known as Sosimius of Palestine, who was thought to have resided in the town for a brief period in the 6th century AD. The Eastern Orthodox Church in the town was essentially abandoned after the Islamic conquest of the 7th century. But when the Crusaders took over in the 12th century, it was reconstructed. Of course, the rule of the Crusaders was only temporary, and with their defeat by the sword of Saladin in the late 12th century, the church was destroyed again, and the village was essentially abandoned. The town, well the region, came under Ottoman control in 1517, and the village of Bitian was re-established. In 1863, Victor Gouerin, a French archaeologist, wrote that the village had 400 inhabitants, but an Ottoman census some seven years later counted 140 and 55 households but this number may have only included adult males. Which brings me to another of my pet research peeves. Please note your methodology, so that future readers don't have to make assumptions. Got that? Record your methodology. Back to the history. Then, in 1882, a survey of the general region noted that Betin was, to quote, a village built on the side of a flat spur, which rises slightly on the north. On the southeast is a flat dell, with good fig and pomegranate gardens, and there are other fig trees round the village and among the houses. The cottages have a ruinous appearance, with rough stone walls. There is one square white house in two stories, which is visible from a great distance. 
The ground is very open and the slopes gentle. The village slopes down gradually southeast. The surrounding ground is quite bare of trees, of white chalk, very barren and stony on the south, of hard limestone cropping up on the north. The fields divided off by low, dry stone walls. The contrast of gray rocks, the red plow land, and the dark green figs is very striking. The remains of a good-sized tower exist to the north, and on the south the walls of a church of crusading date, once dedicated to St. Joseph. The population is stated at 400. The place is supplied from a fine spring on the south, which wells up in a circular basin. The spring is double and was surrounded by a large reservoir, 314 feet long northwest and southeast 217 feet, and of massive stones. The eastern and southern walls are standing about 10 feet high. The spring is perennial." End quote. And that's the type of description that researchers love. What's the opposite of a pet peeve? That is. Fourteen years later, in 1896, the population of Betten was assessed at about 360 people. Then, in 1907, small gardens and a few old tombs were found in the vicinity. Not very descriptive, but still worth noting. Like most of the region, the Ottomans maintained control through the first part of the 20th century until their defeat in World War I. With the end of that conflict and the French and British control of the area, immigrants migrated to it and built a mosque near the ruins of the destroyed church. And the city came under the control of the British. In 1922, the Brits conducted a census and found that Bedin had a population of 446. And not only that, but they were all noted as being Muslim. When another census was conducted in 1931, the count had increased by 120 to 566 in 135 households, and they all remained Muslim. Fourteen years later, in a census conducted in 1945, after the end of World War II, the population had increased to 690, and they still were all Muslim. It was also noted that the area was just under two square miles, or about five square kilometers. Of this, about one-third was used for crops, slightly more for growing grains, and just under ten acres for houses and other buildings, all in all not very large. After the 1948 Arab-Israeli War and the subsequent armistice agreements, the village of Betin came under the control of the Kingdom of Jordan. This lasted for close to 20 years until the 1967 Six-Day War, when the village, along with the remainder of the West Bank, became part of Israel. One last note, in 1977, the biblical name of Bethel was used as the new name of an Israeli settlement constructed adjacent to Bedin. And back to Genesis chapter 35. Next in 35 is a place known as Elan Bakuth, which in the footnotes of the New Revised Standard Version is alternatively called the Oak of Weeping. And this is the only mention of this place in the Bible, and there is nothing in the outside historic record, so I'll keep moving along. After the Oak is a place known as Ephrath, 
which is parenthetically referred to as Bethlehem. As you would correctly suspect, the history of Bethlehem is fairly well known. I'll get to it next week. But before signing off this week, a little about Ephrath. In chapter 35, it is while Jacob's family is traveling to Ephrath that Benjamin is born and Rachel dies in childbirth. Historically, it is believed that Ephrath and Bethlehem were one and the same, similar to Luz and Bethel. And this is evident in what is believed to be Rachel's tomb, and it is located at Bethlehem's gate. More modern researchers believe that Ephrath was not located near the modern Bethlehem, but was instead closer to Bethel, probably near Ramallah. This belief is based on the verses in 1 Samuel and Jeremiah. There is also evidence from other sources, such as the name of the location near Ramallah, that in Arabic translates to the phrase, the burial of the children of Israel. It is also adjacent to a wadi named Farah, which is lexically similar to the word Ephrath, but not that the actual location matters that much. Also, in much of the Old Testament, the name Ephrath is used to describe the members of the tribe of Judah. Caleb, a member of the tribe of Judah, during the Exodus period, his second wife was named Ephrath, a name that apparently translates to fruitful. And that's probably a good place to end this episode. Join me next week when I'll cover the ancient history of Bethlehem, probably the most well-known city in the New Testament. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, I hope you will go to iTunes, or wherever you receive the podcast from, and leave a positive review. Due to the way the iTunes algorithms are constructed, doing so helps others to find the podcast. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. If you're enjoying the podcast, do subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. Thank you.